Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Jason Ackerman, co-founder of the online grocer Fresh Direct. Fresh Direct is one of the first companies to disrupt the traditional food supply chain by sourcing food where it's produced and delivering it to consumers without going through additional retailers. Fresh Direct makes deliveries in the New York metro region and parts of New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. Fresh Direct launched in 2002 from its headquarters in a former paper plant in Long Island City, Queens. Prior to starting Fresh Direct, Jason was an investment banker at Donaldson, Lufkin, and Generet, focused on supermarket retailers. Welcome. Thank you. So I want to start by kind of visualizing what your headquarters look like. How would you describe it to somebody who hasn't been there? Well, you've seen the, the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Well, uh, imagine that. So uh, rather than having rivers of chocolate, there are uh, rivers of all sorts of food flowing. Uh, we have kitchens making prepared meals and bakery and meat cutting and fish cutting and cheese caves and produce ripening rooms. So it's just a whole uh, range of experience of food. The temperatures range from almost 60 degrees to minus 36 degrees or? Uh, minus 20. Ice cream is happy at minus 20, and we have uh, about nine different temperature zones in the building. This is Celsius? Like yes. <laughs> How many miles of conveyor belts do you have in your warehouse? Uh, many, many miles. Hmm. Many miles. Lots of sorting machines and conveyor belts and, and lots hmm. of technology. You have an internal rating system. Can you tell me about that? You know, when it comes to produce... Uh, one of the great things about uh, being in a physical store is you get to pick and choose. Well, online, we do the picking for you. So we have a quality team that every single morning uh, rates all of the produce. They walk the lines, they taste it, they, they look at it, they give it a note one through 10, and that immediately publishes on the site. So when you're shopping that day, you know how our quality team rates that specific piece of produce that day. The business has not always been this streamlined. You worked on a business plan in 1999. Tell me about your wife's thoughts on the business in the early days or when you were kind of conjuring up the idea. Well, you know, go back to the, in, the, in the 1990s, my wife, and we were both like real foodies, uh, she would go to probably six different shops. She had this cheese shop she liked, the pasta shop she liked, and she got a produce from a certain store, and, and there wasn't a single place that all of the great fresh foods were procured. And when I, when I told her about that we're going to start this online business, she goes, oh, honey, that seems great. And very patronizing, like, there's no way I'm going to use this because I have my stores. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, um, but if we satisfy you with respect to your quality needs, you know, do we have a shot? And she was actually quite skeptical about the business. Mm -hmm. uh, and others were quite skeptical, too, because at the time there had been a company, Webvan, which we know is the poster child or the reciprocal, the poster child of those days um, that spent about a billion dollars on, you know, online groceries. How did you say to yourself, oh, we're going to be different? There's one real huge difference where others have said, hey, let's build an online delivery business. The idea was actually about how do we get quality food better than the retail store? And we looked at the supply chain and realized that if we build these direct relationships and do our own manufacturing and don't have 
inventory in all these stores and have better cold chain and make sure the food's prep right, that actually the food is a better chance of being fresher than it does at the store. So the root of the business really started from how do we make food better, not how do we make a home delivery. At the time, you were a banker at DLJ, focused on supermarkets, and you met Joe Fideli, who at the time, he had just left Fairway. He had actually helped to co-found, and there's some controversy around this, the Uptown Fairway, a store that he had run was called By Choice. And basically, it was a precursor to this kind of producer-to-consumer model. How is it that you met Joe? So actually, Joe was working uh, and a part owner of the Fairway at 125th Street, if you remember being a New Yorker. It was the kind of first place you walk into a cooler to buy your meat. And Joe was a great food guy. Um, And I had left banking at that time and was looking to uh, bring on a food executive to build some concepts that I had. And so I walked into the Fairway store because I thought it was a great store. And I said, who's, the, who's running this place? And they pointed me to the office and I went upstairs and uh, met Joe. And Joe and I just kind of literally spent the entire day talking. Mm-hmm. And we really hit it off around the business and that's how we connected. You partnered in 1999, but it wasn't until 2002 that you actually started making your first deliveries to Roosevelt Island and Battery Park initially. What were some of the hiccups in those earliest days that you can remember? I mean, besides everything? Exactly. <laughs> so first of all, when, when Joe and I had gotten together and we were actually toying with opening retail stores, and then we, we kind of jointly developed the idea of, of making this an online business, we didn't really have any idea of how to construct the business. So the first idea was we would build a 10,000 square foot warehouse and we would get stuff from the wholesale markets and, and but we really didn't know how big it was. But after a while we decided that this is either gonna be a huge business or a total bust. And so we went for it and we, we bought this building in Long Island City and we constructed a 300,000 square foot warehouse, put in all this automation. And uh, it was really trying to figure out how, to, how do you do this business? How do you build all this stuff? Because we were nervous that once we launched, if it took off, we wouldn't have time to figure it out. So um, it took us almost a solid two and a half years to actually take the paper and construct the business. So you really did a lot of things on the front end rather than kind of leaning on your heels and kind of seeing what would happen in a way. We, we made a bet. Yeah. You know, we, we definitely got aggressive in terms of the scale of the bet that we were going to make and the investment that we made to put all the upfront technology in production. We built kitchens and bakeries and cutting facilities and technology before we had any revenue. Now, you had $100 million that you got mostly from friends and family. I know your uncle's Peter Ackerman, who supplied the majority of the capital. It was both a combination of, of family as well as friends. You know, having been a banker, one of the, the few skills it gave me was actually raising money, and we were able to go out and, and speak to friends. Uh, and honestly, when we had gone out to raise money to the marketplace, the general marketplace, it was kind of right around when Webvan was collapsing, um, and I was pretty much a three-headed dragon. So people <laughs> thought we were actually out of our minds. So it was really difficult to raise the money. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just cobbled together from friends and raised a bunch and uh, and launched it. And I mentioned Peter Ackerman. He's your, your father's brother, and he's known uh, in the, I think it was the early 1980s for working with Michael Bilkin uh, in the junk bond area, selling junk bonds. What was his perspective on what you were doing? Well, he was head of capital markets at Drexel with Mike, and so he was responsible for a lot of these, the uh, what's called sponsorship. So he followed the KKRs of the world, and so he had uh, been involved in probably 400 acquisitions, and 
a lot of them actually were in the supermarket sector. And, uh, you know, we had been talking about this concept. I brought in him. Initially, he was skeptical. But after the work we put into it, uh, he felt it was a very interesting bet. And, and uh, I had to make a pitch like any other investor to him. You spent the majority of the $100 million on building this very state-of-the-art plant. And then what happens? And then we hit the go button. <laughs> and then we had four customers. <laughs> It was the world's biggest bodega. It was very actually uh, nerve-wracking because, you know, you spend all this money and you have all this anticipation and then you turn it on. And what we did is we we went to Roosevelt Island first Mm -hmm. and we we built these uh, fruits and vegetable eight-foot rubber costumes and we we dressed up a bunch of people and we put them onto the islands and we jumped around and said, here's $50 of free food and fresh food. We didn't give away uh, bottled water, just fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And we we scared a lot of children and uh, we, uh, but we got it known and quickly uh, we got some traction in the marketplace and it was a lot of learns. Very small at that time, but we learned how to kind of reach some customers. Really, it was like as grassroots as you're dressing up in a Fruit of the Loom thing? Block by block. So, and why Roosevelt Island? I, I feel like the only way I know to get there is the tram. I mean, w- w- I, I know that's kind of close to Long Island City. Well, what there were was two the reasons. Yeah. yeah, there were two reasons. One is... Um, it was actually close to our building because we're in Long Island City. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love Roosevelt Island, but honestly, if we really messed up, I don't think anyone was going to know about it. And so it was kind of an opportunity for us to, to do it. And if we made mistakes without you know, New York really talking too much about it. How did word spread? How did the word get out? Because I don't remember you're spending a lot on advertising, or maybe you did. No, we actually, we actually didn't. We had a, a really simple idea. We already spent all of our money building the facility, so we had no money left for marketing. Um, but we had really two strategies. One is we said, look, we really believe that if people experience the product, they're going to love it. And so we said, rather than spending a lot of advertising dollars, we're going to give away the food. We had a $50 free food offer and a $100 free food offer. We're literally, you get $100 of free food and you don't have to spend any money in this free delivery. And it was so outrageous when people did it like, wait a minute, I just got 100 bucks of steaks and, and lobsters and all this stuff. And you would tell your friend because it was so outrageous. And so we really relied on this kind of wow factor on such a large offer, mm-hmm. but it was the product mm-hmm. that we got into people's hands. And that's that's really how we built it. And we did it block by block. We made a lot of mistakes along the way, but we uh, we, we built $60 million of revenue our first year, then we did $120 million our second year, then $180 million our third year. So it actually was building up very fast. Was there sort of a pivot moment in the press that helped to get more demand? No, actually, no, it's shocking. The press was very difficult with us. You know, I think in the in the early days when New York City was ruled by the great classic retailers of New York, Fairway and other players, um, and the New York Times had, you know, some great uh, food writers, building an online food business, the food writers really didn't believe that great food and online could be together. And it took a very long time for the food writing community to take us seriously because it was very against the grain of how they wanted to think about this. And so it was not an easy road convincing uh, those writers to uh, take us serious. What about operationally were things that you needed to tweak? More than tweak. It was was quite quite an experience about learning about the customers. So I would say the, the hardest thing for us is that was actually the human capital. So we required about 500 new people a year Mm -hmm. to keep up with the growth. And 
we did a very bad job of training and onboarding and human resource management. And with over 100% turnover, we actually had to hire like 1,200 people every year. How about, was it $600,000 in parking tickets? <laughs> is, that, is that true? That's a very low number. <laughs> we get a lot of parking tickets. Still? Still. New York City relies very, very heavily on parking tickets as a major source of revenue for New York City. Mm -hmm. Just going back to the, the, the hiring, you had an immigration audit in the early days where you lost... 200 workers or so who were undocumented. Was that part of kind of the growing pains of the HR uh, human capital issue? Yeah, you know, going back, you know, back in the early 2000s, you know, there wasn't a big database, government database you can kind of check. So we would bring in people and we would get their cards and they'd give us their cards and we'd fill out the paperwork. Um, but we didn't realize that a lot of the cards were actually fake cards, not real cards. Mm. Um, and and some of the most wonderful, incredible people. And we had whole families who work with us. And that event happened and we gathered everyone together. Like, look, immigration says that they're going to come do an audit. What we need everyone to do is bring back in their cards. Mm -hmm. We want to validate all the paperwork and make sure because God forbid they come in and the paperwork's not right. You know, we don't want anyone to get in trouble. And literally the next day, several hundred people didn't show back up for work. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jason Ackerman, co-founder of Fresh Direct. We'll hear more from Jason coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Jason Ackerman, co-founder of the online grocer Fresh Direct. Fresh Direct launched in 2002 from its headquarters in a former paper plant in Long Island City, Queens. Prior to starting Fresh Direct, Jason was an investment banker at Donaldson, Lufkin, and Generet, focused on supermarket retailers. There was some public acrimony with your co-founder, Joe. He had a rather public feud with his former partner, Fairway. I'll leave it at that. But, you know, you were in a market with sharp elbows. I mean, it wasn't just Fairway, who was kind of threatened by your presence, but even Gristides. And supermarkets are a very low-margin business, I think, especially in New York City. It is fierce. How, how did that play out? Um, can you give some examples of that? I'd be very cautious to give you the real stories because it is a down and dirty business. I think a lot of players in New York were very uninterested in Fresh Direct being part of the, the food group in New York. And through mechanisms on the supply side and otherwise, there was a lot of behind the scenes pressure for us not to be in business. Any other color you could give to that? Well, look, I think that most stores will, will attempt to kind of threaten to not, you know, carry your product if you supply other players. And there was a lot of you know, people threatening to, to not want to sell to us because if they did, they lose their existing relationships. Producers who were threatened by the existing incumbents said that maybe we shouldn't sell to you because I lose my shelf space at this traditional retailer. Right, and you're not basically. known and they are, so they, they felt risk. And we had a lot of that pressure. You were kind of swimming with two bathing suits in that, you know, in the early days, not only were you launching this new company, but it was kind of an, it was a new concept and e-commerce wasn't as mature as it is today, um, so people even are being afraid to like use their credit card online. Like, can you talk to me about like those kind of uh, systematic obstructions? Well, that's you know we're really dating ourselves with this conversation because it we forget when you go back to the late 1990s 
that there were actually these same fears. People were afraid. In fact, when I started the business, I didn't have an email account. And yeah. I had my chief technology officer fax things to my house. And he kind of freaked out. It's like, look, you're starting a commerce company. You're, you're going to have to kill your fax. But we had all sorts of ideas because we were nervous that online was not a comfortable place yet. And so we had ideas on sending DVDs and catalogs to people. And so it was very much at that very early stage of comfort. And we did get a lot of calls about credit card security and all sorts of issues like that back mm-hmm. then. Uh, and you weren't convinced yourself, right, that, yes, you'd be a delivery service, but how committed were you to the online component? Well, you know, as retailers, we deeply understood and believed that great quality fresh food was a general driver to a store. What we didn't know was that if we delivered that with the barrier of online and not touching and feeling, how much would that impact? So, but to be honest with you, we, we had no idea. We had no idea how big or small or how consumers were going to react. You mentioned that mistakes in the early days were the norm rather than the exception. What are some examples of those? We talked about parking tickets, but what are some mistakes in the early days? Well, I remember uh, the big one of the first lessons is just how much New York customers just want what they want, and there's no room for error. So I remember it was literally the third day, and this woman had ordered some food, and she'd ordered 23 cans of canned artichokes. And apparently we only shipped her 15 cans. She calls customer service. Customer service was right by my desk. The agent's like, look, Jason, you got to take this customer because she's freaking out. She's like, listen, I'm having a dinner party. I ordered these things. This is really important to me. If you don't get it here within an hour, I'm calling the New York Times and your business is over. I'm like, oh my God, my business is over. So I call up the supplier. I drive up to the Bronx. We have them open up the warehouse. I get the nine extra cans of things. I get in my car. I drive to her house. I'm like running to get to her house. I'm thinking there's this big dinner party. She's got to make make the stuff that she's going to make. Ring the door, but she opens up and she's in her nightgown. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, here's your, here's your artichokes. And um, she's like, thank you. Oh, my. And, you know, of the many lessons, it's, look, people don't care if you make a mistake. They just want their stuff. There's no toleration. And they were going to tell you anything because yeah. they just wanted what they wanted. Was it your feeling that, that things were working despite all these, like, hurdles here and there that, you know, when you look beyond that, like, oh, you know, we are getting customers. Like, what was going on in your head? Well, actually, once we got through the initial test phase in, in, in Barry Park and Roosevelt Island, we started rolling out in Manhattan. We took those big jumping costumes. We went literally to Murray Hill, and we went, when I tell you block for block, we had a five-block grid of the entire New York City. And we would take these guys out there and we'd go on the streets. And it was amazing how fast we built up a database of customers. Mm. And by the time we had made it to the Upper East Side and we're about to go to the Upper West Side, mm. we had 60,000 pre-registered customers on the Upper West and Lower West Side before we even opened. So I was no longer worried about how big this business was going to be. Okay, so the, the demand was there. I was just scared to death how I'm going to actually service this business and not and get the experience right, you know, which was always a big challenge. And there were other moments that we really learned, like what happens in snowstorms. In fact, I don't know if you recall when Sandy, Superstorm Sandy came around, our facility was actually quite close to the water lines when it happened. And uh, during that storm, we actually lost about 75% of all of our trucks because they were parked too close to the water. We kind of came in the next day and uh, our trucks didn't work and we had actually no way to make deliveries. 
you know, there were there were moments like that where, you know, you just don't even know where and how you're going to kind of get through the next day. So what did you do with all the food? You know, at that time, remember, a lot of electricity was out in New York. And I would say it was probably the biggest single waste event <laughs> in all of New York. Uh, refrigeration wasn't working a lot of places. So, yeah, there was a lot of food. Not only was the food, a lot of food had to get thrown away. Deliveries couldn't get made. And you couldn't even get food into New York. In fact, right. you couldn't get fuel into New York. You couldn't even fuel your trucks. It was probably the biggest and most interesting learning experience having to kind of resort the business after that storm. And you gave away a bunch of the food. Yeah, well, actually, in our business, we do. We, we formed a long time ago a great partnership with City Harvest. One of the things about our business, because we don't have lots of stores that you have to pick up, we're one facility. So City Harvest basically lives in our facility every single day that they're there. And everything that we don't sell to the customers that we don't think should go out to the customers, it goes right onto a City Harvest truck, mm-hmm. and it's out into the, into, the, uh, into the food banks right away that day. Mm-hmm. Um, so almost all of Fresh Direct's food gets consumed either through the consumers or through the food banks. Do you have any, you know, just specific examples of um, some suppliers whom you work with? You know, for us, the stories of the producers is really about connecting with the passion. Mm-hmm. So we were we were in Arizona at a cantaloupe farm. And um, how many people have picked up a cantaloupe? And you're kind of looking around. You're like, all right, you're pressing it or you're scratching it. You're like, how do I know if it's ripe? Right. Nobody really knows how to do it. True. So we're at the farm and we said to the woman who owns the farm, it says, how do you know when it's ripe? Yeah. And, and secondly is, why is half the, the cantaloupes ripe and half are not? She kind of explained to us that, well, see that field over there? Well, I gotta, in order for me to hit the price that the retailers want, I got to cut that whole field all at once. Some of them are ripe, some of them are not, but I can't afford to go back four or five times. Mm-hmm. So, well, gee, I bet our customers would love to have ripe cantaloupes every single time. Mm-hmm. Could, could you do that? And she said, well, I, I know how to do it, but that might cost a little bit more money. We said, okay, well, tell us mm-hmm. what it'll take. So uh, a day later, she came back and she said, all right, it costs this much more a mile. And we said, good, we'll take the whole field. And we said, what we'll do is we'll brand your farm and then we'll do a guaranteed right program for our customers so that you, we can shop with confidence. And she was super excited because she got, you know, people who were passionate about the food. She got to pick a perfect, you know, cantaloupe and she got to put her name on it. And it becomes now our number one selling program. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jason Ackerman, the co-founder of the online grocer Fresh Direct. Fresh Direct works directly with farmers and chefs and bakers to deliver fresh ingredients and prepared meals to consumers. Fresh Direct also has a service called Food Kick, which makes same-day deliveries of simple items rather than having to order a day in advance. You're very fortunate that you had the moxie to invest in the infrastructure. Did you have any precedent that you were looking to to say, you know what, we're going to just go big? Or was it kind of on a whim? I think the days in banking where you finance a lot of big companies and so forth, the dollars or the idea didn't scare you. If it was big, and we didn't have the facility to do it, then we knew we'd be in more trouble. So we said it's better to bet big and have it be a little smaller than the other way around or else we couldn't actually service it. And it turned out to be the right bet. And you also had to invest heavily in just your your technology and inventory systems. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how you evolved? Well, actually, we, we really had um, uh, three big things going on during the, the build. I hired like 40 great food professionals from all over New York City, the best of the best, and we had this group of food people. And then we hired technical engineers. Um, So we actually built up a team around 50 software engineers. Um, And we implemented SAP, which is a big manufacturing system. I hired engineers who did conveyor control. So we actually built up 
all that. And we, we spent probably $25 million just on systems, technology and systems day one. We realized that a lot of what we did, some of it was right, some of it was wrong, and we rebuilt, uh, enhanced, and particularly things like last mile distribution, you know, the trucking and the routing. We've really evolved that piece of technology. That we didn't understand day one. What's an example of that? Well, we've got hundreds of vehicles running all throughout the Tri-State area. They're by appointment. We will go to the same house 17 times a day. You know, when we were first delivering, we really didn't have any technology in the field. And we basically had, you remember the old Nextel push-button phones? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we go out the trucks and, and uh, hey, Joey, how you doing? Are you making the deliveries on time? Yeah, boss, deliveries are going great. And we're like, okay, we think we're running on time. We had no idea if maybe Joy was actually just having a hamburger with his friend right now, was actually not making deliveries. And we really had no idea what was going on in the field. We just wait for customers to call, say, hey, where's my delivery? And we say, well, I don't know. I thought he made it. And so over time, we've migrated to a huge amount of tracking mm -hmm. and scanning and devices to know at any one time where everybody is so that, for example, if we are running late, we know it in advance and we can actually call the customer before we're late to say, hey, this is when he's expected to be there. It's going to be a little late today. Do you have a background at all in operations? Because you were, you know, this banker, uh, which certainly is very hands-off with all of that capital. Yeah, well, look, as an investment banker, you, you, you have certain skills and you have lots of skills that you, you don't have. Right. Those that you don't have is running anything. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I was pretty clueless. Um, but it seems like instinctively. Well, go ahead. Well, look, yeah. we, it, truth is we, um, we have had a family business since, I don't know, 100 years. Uh, manufacturing and and as a kid I grew up in my dad's factory I worked in the summertime thousands of hourly workers and kind of that was always in my blood I used to follow my dad around the factory and I worked there in the summer so kind of making things was a bit more in my blood than banking was you mentioned your father he made um, books of fabric swatches what was the name or is the name of the company uh, it's no longer here um, but it was economy color card basically when you went to go redecorate and you wanted to flip through all the different fabric samples you got the hardware store we made those books so mm -hmm. it was a lot of cutting and correlating and design and and putting the books together and and uh, a lot of uh, automation and manual labor and uh, big factories throughout New Jersey and Brooklyn. Now, when you say that, you know, that rubbed off on you, is there anything in particular or some examples that you you really transferred? Well, you know, he, he when, when I was 15, he made me work over the summer on the plant floor uh, and running this coalition line. And there was, when I tell you, 27 different nationalities on the floor. And I had to run two lines. I had about 70 workers on them. And it was really my first experience of understanding the cultural differences and how they worked and how they saw each other when I didn't really see or understand the differences. And I actually, as a manager, had to make choices on how to build teams relative to culture, backgrounds, and other things, and how well are they wouldn't work together. And uh, it was really an eye-opening experience for me. Especially then when you're faced with the same human capital issues in the early days. Yeah, and the business actually isn't much different than what my dad did. Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, behind the you know, the, the Wizard of Oz curtain, there's still 3,000 associates who are making food and cutting food and packing boxes and making delivery. And, and those associates are the ones who, who get and, and do all the work on behalf of the customers. And, you know, they've got to be happy and they've got to know how to work together and they've got to feel valued. And, you know, a lot of that came from, you know, working back then with my dad. Was there any sense that you might go into the fabric swatch book business? <laughs> Well, you know, I had this, uh, he had this younger brother, Peter, who was 10 years younger, and he went into this thing called banking. 
And it seemed a lot cooler than making fabric books. So I landed up going in that direction, and then I uh, eventually came back. By the way, at this time, you're raising three children. Uh, what was going on at home during all of this? Well, you know what's interesting? I left banking because I was traveling 48 weeks out of the year, leaving Sunday night, coming back on Friday. And I said to my wife, who I love dearly, I said, this is just no way I can be a dad yeah. and, and do this. So um, building a business in New York, I can work 12 hours a day, but I can see my kids for breakfast and see them at home you know, at night. And that's kind of what I did. And I, I see them every day. Do your kids shop, go to the grocery store? Well, or? my kids don't go into stores. Yeah. Um, in fact, if my wife goes into Whole Foods, my kids are like, Dad, Mom went to Whole Foods, but she told me not to tell you. <laughs> That's great. Um, so yeah, our yeah. family does not go grocery shopping, but I'm in stores mm-hmm. every week because mm-hmm. you're in retail. Mm-hmm. Um, but your relationship with food around where food comes from could be, you know, it's important to teach kids this. Leadership was not the most constant uh, in these years, it seems. So Joe ran the, he was the CEO for the first, let's see, he left in 2004. So he ran the business for the first. For the first year of, of opening, yeah. And then where is he in the world now? I do not know. You know, th- when we started the business, I built a lot of the technology and the, you know, facility and operations, and Joe was the food guy, and we split up the responsibilities, and we landed up uh, parting ways. Um, but I was probably 33 at the time, and, and while I understood every guts of the business and having been an investment banker, um, I, I wasn't exactly saying, hey, I'm qualified to be a CEO. And I'm very much a, an open book person, and so I really wanted other people to come in that I could kind of learn from. I knew our business, but actually running a company was something that it wasn't something I've done before. So over the course of the next bunch of years, we've had several people come into the business who took on the CEO role, and I you know, played a, a very serious role from president to, to chief financial officer and, and operations and so forth. Um, and then, you know, five, six years ago, I eventually then took on the full-time CEO role and, and no longer brought in those uh, those people. Do you feel like, God, I wish I had done that sooner. I just wish I had had more confidence in myself. In retrospect, you can always uh, say that. And there's been a lot of people who encouraged me to do that. But, you know, I'm, uh, I'm very cautious about, um, you know, what I know and what I don't know. And, and I think I've always been more of a student in life. And mm-hmm. I've always enjoyed learning from other people. I think now I feel like I'm... I'm so far ahead of where I was back then in terms of understanding, you know, leadership in the executive position. You mentioned that you were, you know, you're a student in life. What were you like, uh, actually, as a student growing up in New Jersey? How would people, how would your friends or, or your parents kind of describe you? Um, very kind of in my head. So thinking through problems, I would sit for days trying to work out and build models or other type of things. Um, I was a musician. I was an artist. But actually, in college... All I actually really wanted to do was be a ski instructor and play my guitar in Vail, Colorado. So I had, I had gotten, to, uh, gotten my Canadian uh, ski certificate as a ski instructor at a certain level so I can go right to teaching adults. And as far as I was concerned, when I was about 19 or 20, I was just going to teach skiing. Now, you went to BU? Went to Boston University, yeah. When did that dream end? I literally kind of said, huh, guitar in a ski shop or Thank investment you. banking? And mm-hmm. it was literally almost a coin toss. Mm-hmm. And I landed up, uh, I figured, you know what? If I go banking and make a little bit of money, I can always play my guitar. Yeah. If I play my guitar in a, in a, in a bar in Colorado, I may never leave. So mm-hmm. we're going to go banking. What do you like to play on the guitar? Blues. 
I've, I, music is a big part of my family and, and my house uh, in Soho. We've got the drums, bass, all my guitars sitting around, and all my, my daughter's a great drummer, my son's a great guitar player, and, and we, uh, we jam all the time. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Jason Ackerman, the co-founder of Fresh Direct. Coming up, we'll meet Jessamine Rodriguez, founder of Hot Bread Kitchen. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Jessamine Rodriguez, the founder of Hot Bread Kitchen, an organization that teaches immigrant women to bake the artisanal breads from their home country. Hot Bread Kitchen's ethnic breads are available at farmers markets throughout New York City and at select grocery stores such as Whole Foods and Dina DeLuca. Prior to Hot Bread Kitchen, Jessamine held a range of jobs, such as working on immigration issues at the UN and helping to launch a New York City public school. She was also the first woman to be hired as a baker for Chef Daniel Baloud's three-star Michelin restaurant, Daniel. Jessamine launched Hot Bread Kitchen from her apartment in Brooklyn. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. If I were to walk into Hot Bread Kitchen's bakery today, what would I see? You know, it is truly a hive of activity. We're in this really quirky um, building underneath the Metro North tracks at 115th and Park in Manhattan. It was 10,000 square feet of public market space that um, we built out into a bakery and incubator. So the first thing you'll notice when you walk into Hot Bread Kitchen is just thousands of pounds of dough being processed into halas, into msemen, into bialis, into Persian breads, into all of these breads. Any uh, any time of day except for maybe 3.30 a.m. in the morning, there's bread on the table and women around the table making bread and baking bread. I often am so curious when I walk into a bakery anywhere in the city and I see these beautiful tarts and croissants and cookies. I'm wondering who and where are they baking this? You're one example of where it's happening. It's a great question. And you know what? I would I would say the question to where they're baking it, unfortunately, fewer and fewer of them are getting baked in the city. The price of real estate has, has left most bakeries kind of moving to New Jersey and moving out of the city. Um, and people are having to, to really travel for those jobs. So one of the, the, I think, the real innovations of what we're doing is moving into a community with high density of population and helping and, and a high unemployment rate and helping to create a lot of jobs in that area. What are these women doing prior to getting trained by you? Nancy Mendez was selling DVDs in the subways before she came to Hot Bread Kitchen. Liv Vanessa came with her husband, um, who's a manager at Burger King from Bangladesh. And her story is really interesting because when she came for her interview, um, her husband came with her and 
didn't didn't really let her speak for herself and her English was so limited that she didn't feel confident enough to speak and now that Vanessa is one of the managers in the kitchen. Could you talk briefly about your post-program placement? The jobs that women get after range from, uh, you know, bakeries in New York City to starting their own businesses? There's two training outcomes. The first is is that women um, start their own food businesses. So uh, a woman that we hired about two years ago is named Fanny, and she came in and learned how to bake. And once she was in the bakery training program, we realized that she had been running a catering company out of her home kitchen. So she was out of her home kitchen catering, you know, a hundred person Ecuadorian weddings, and we um, helped her formalize her catering business, and she graduated to become um, a member of our incubator kitchen. The more typical for us is seeking good management track positions in bakeries um, and food manufacturing facilities around around the city. We have placed bakers at Whole Foods. We placed bakers at Maison Kaiser, Danielle. We placed bakers at other smaller bakeries that people might not recognize that are a little bit off the off the radar. Hot Bread Kitchen is a a culmination of experiences that you had, and you had the seed for this idea kind of in your back pocket for almost a decade. What are some events that influenced your your starting? HBK. For instance, you lived in Guatemala where you would uh, go every day with a, a, a mother to a corn mill. Yeah, it's it's funny. So I spent some time when I was in college doing development work in, in Guatemala City. It was years later that I remembered this experience, but I was living with a family for a number of, of weeks only. But I was fascinated by the process of soaking corn and grinding corn. So the, the woman who I was, the mother of the house where I was living, made fresh corn tortillas that were just tremendously delicious. And um, we, we every morning we would take the soaked corn and go to a community um, molino, which is where they grind corn, and bring home the fresh masa, and we would make tortillas. And, you know, at that point, I would have never thought that I would end up running a tortilla company 10 years later, but it it somehow was like life experience that I cataloged um, for this later entrepreneurial iteration. (laughs) You also interviewed at an organization called Women World Banking which also kind of uh, influenced uh, this endeavor. How so? The, the, the real idea for Hopper Kitchen, the real kernel of the idea for Hopper Kitchen came early on in my professional career. When I had just recently graduated from college, I interviewed for a job in, in New York City for Women's World Banking, which is a phenomenal microfinance institution. Um, and I didn't get that executive assistant job, and, but I told someone about it, and he heard Women's World Baking. And for me, that was evocative of kind of this this of an immigrant women's baking collective. And I still have notes from back then. And I, you know, my early 20s self, I sort of started to think about what it would mean and got quickly intimidated and realized I didn't have what it would take to pull it off. Started this other career, but kind of just kept pulling experiences together. And then um, in 2006, learned how to bake. 
It seems while you still had this thread of immigration and interest in food, you also had a strong social mission uh, in your in your pursuits. You worked at a New York City public school. You helped to launch one. Did you feel like you were kind of fumbling through your 20s or was it more of a very kind of mindful adventure that you were on? Or somewhere in between. I ended up in graduate school, and that felt very intentional. My degree is very specific. I really focused on immigration policy. And I thought that I wanted to get a job doing immigration policy. And then at the point of graduation, I was like, oh, God, what does that mean? And I just was not interested or motivated to do that kind of work, which is when I made the switch into public education. Um, So I got involved in the school startup, and I did that for four years. So while you were working at the public school, um, you cloned yourself and also uh, <laughs> got a master baker certificate at the new school. <laughs> How, when, when did you decide to do that? So I did that in 2006. Somebody said to me, you know, I had been talking about this idea for Women's World Baking for a long time. And she said, well, you're not an immigrant and you're not a and you're not a baker. So like, why, how, what do you have that you bring to this project? So it made me realize I would need to learn how to bake. And then the real, I think, game changer in the trajectory of Hot Bread Kitchen is that I landed this apprenticeship in the bakery at Restaurant Danielle. And my My first day at work, I think it was really telling because I loved being in the bakery. How did you land that apprenticeship, which ultimately translated into a a full-time job where you were the first woman hired in the bakery? My boyfriend, now husband, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, had had worked in the front of house and in wine service at Danielle. And he introduced me to Mark Fiorentino, who is a benevolent, wonderful human being who took pity on my weak baking skills and and took me under his wing and taught me at that point everything I knew about baking. And at what point uh, during that, that job were you feeling, hmm, I'd like to go ahead and start this hot bread kitchen. I only learned how to bake to start hot bread kitchen. You seem very self-directed and, and self-starting. What were you like as a as a child? <laughs> I know it's open-ended, but yeah. um, you know, do, do you do you do you think that way about yourself? I don't think I have ever responded well to a lot of authority. I think I. I think that that's been a thread through my life, and now I have a three-year-old, and she's exactly the same way. Um, I... And now you wish you responded better to authority. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're from Canada. I'm from Canada. What did your parents do? My my parents were both educators. So my father was a teacher. My mother is a professor. I think at home I knew that I had to follow rules, and they were supportive of creativity, and I think understood that I had a certain independent spirit. I started traveling relatively young, and then in college I spent time traveling alone through South America, just kind of exploring um, because I didn't find that university was necessarily worthwhile. Your your grandmother um, played an important role in what you're doing now, kind of indirectly. How so? Yeah, I th- attribute a lot of the personality piece to a very my my bubby, my paternal grandmother, who factors very strongly in my life. You know, she lived close by when I was growing up in and Toronto. She, in Toronto, um, and she was widowed in her 30s and then became an insurance broker in the 50s. It was just very clear about what she wanted for her granddaughter. And I was I was the only granddaughter. And so she put, you know, I, I think I took those signals and translated into a certain kind of independence. What does she make of this? 
When I launched Hotbread Kitchen, all she could say was, what, you have a graduate degree from Columbia and you're going to open a bakery? It was like completely unfathomable to her. And then in 2009, we got a feature in Food & Wine magazine, which was like this glorious, you know, piece about what we do. And that was the first moment where she acknowledged that, okay, maybe this is a good idea. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jessamine Rodriguez, the founder of Hot Bread Kitchen, a New York City-based organization that focuses on utilizing the bread-making skills that immigrant women have brought with them from their country of origin. Hot Bread Kitchen's ethnic breads are available at some of the city's leading restaurants, including Danny Meyer's Gramercy Tavern and the restaurant at the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art. The women in the Hot Bread Kitchen program learn management, English, and other skills that they can carry with them to jobs at larger bakeries or entrepreneurial baking ventures of their own. So you decide to leave Danielle, uh, and Mark knew your your intention from the inception. I think that's why he why Mark took took me into the program is because he knew how hard it was to find good bakers, and I was so he was really motivated to train me so that he could get this pipeline of well trained bakers. It was a you know he's benevolent, but it was a little self serving. <laughs> <laughs> and you started Hotbread Kitchen out of your Brooklyn apartment. I did, which much, was much to my roommate's chagrin at that point. <laughs> what did your apartment smell like? It smelled like good bread. It smelled like tortillas and bread, but also wet tents because I was selling in farmer's markets at that point. So I remember storing my tents in the living room and um, the the roommates were really accommodating. And at what point did um, this become more institutional? I moved it out of the house pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, I baked actually a few shifts from bread for sale out of the bakery at Danielle. Mm-hmm. But then we moved into a shared commercial kitchen in Queens. And, um, you know, early on, they were the slog years. I baked overnight and then would sell all day in farmer's markets and do my own delivery to wholesale accounts. It's like a typical small bootstrap startup story. The game changer came with some of the early philanthropic supporters that came on that gave us the initial boost that we needed to continue. Simultaneous with baking 24-7, were you grant writing or did you have random introductions to people? No, I was grant writing. My mom helped me write some of the early grants. Mm. Um, For a while, I still kept consulting on the side to kind of pay the rent. And then in 2008, I got um, a a competitive fellowship for social entrepreneurs, which allowed me to quit my day job. Mm. Um, And but yes, I mean, the hard part about it was, is that I was doing the kind of intellectual work. I was doing the business planning. I was doing the grant writing. I was doing all of those things while also like baking bread and grinding corn and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, hiring and managing people. Who were one or two or seven of the initial uh, women? The first woman that we hired was Elidia Ramos. Um, and Elidia spent countless hours working with me on the overnight shift. And Elidia loved to give advice. And so we had so many hours to talk. At that point, I was single and dating and like looking for love. And she was married and had three kids. We were about the same age, but we were kind of, you know, she was vicariously living through my m- Maturation and the best line from Olivia: There was this um, guy that she knew that worked at Danielle because I'd gotten her husband a job um, in the in the kitchen at Danielle. There was a there was a butcher at Danielle that Olivia knew through mm-hmm. her husband. He got divorced from his wife, so he was single, and so Olivia really really thought that I should 
Meet the butcher. Meet the butcher. And I just remember her saying, Pero Jessa, sabe cortar carne. Like, he's a great guy. He knows how to cut meat. Like, what else could you want in a husband? And those were the kind of Lydia gems that still stick with me to this day. And, and her kind of work ethic and her ethos and many of her ideas have permeated the company. Now, you mentioned you were single, yet it was your boyfriend, Ellie, uh, now your husband at the time, who introduced you to Danielle. So did you take a high hiatus from each other? We did. We had a little bit of a hiatus. And, you know, it was those early years where I wasn't single, but there was, you know, it took a while for us to to get more serious. And Ellie works uh, in the wine department at Sotheby's. Yes. You also got an Eileen Fisher grant early Mm -hmm. on. They were, I think, our first funder that wasn't a friend writing a check. Um, And Eileen Fisher is the clothing designer. Yeah. The clothing mm-hmm. designer, and she has a grant for female social entrepreneurs. And so the grant forced me, A, to write the business plan. It brought me into this wonderful network of, you know, it's such a women-dominated company, and they're so progressive, and it's a real model of, I think, how business should be run. And then also got a lot of New York City-based customers through them. And then it's a real recognizable name. So once Elaine Fisher came on board, it was kind of like the stamp of approval that I needed from other potential funders in the social enterprise space. What has surprised you about, uh, you know, this? Oh, what surprises me is that the feeling of knowing that you're feeding so many New Yorkers every day. Last night when I was leaving the bakery, there was probably about three or 4,000 pieces of bread waiting to be packed. And we're picky folk. Exactly. There's this kind of just like sense of awe, like, wow, I get to feed all these people. I get to be at so many people's brunch. And then, you know, some Monday mornings I'll open up my email and somebody I haven't heard from in, you know, four or five years will email and be like, I buy your product at the market every day. But I noticed that there was this new olive loaf and I'm so excited. And I took it home and I made a white fish salad and it was delicious. I made a white fish sandwich and it was delicious. And mm. thank you. You are kind of the connective tissue for a lot of strange bedfellows in New York because your your mission is to uh, educate through commerce these immigrant women who are marginalized with people at farmers markets who can afford fancy bread. Yeah, it, it, that's I think a good way to a good way to articulate it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think our core competency is opening up this really growing, immense specialty food market to people who otherwise wouldn't access it. We're helping the woman who's selling tamales in her community at 116th and Lexington get that product into Whole Foods. You have two children. Um, How present are they uh, in what's going on? They're um, omnipresent. My kids spend a lot of time at the bakery. They've got... 35 aunties who look out for them at all, at all times. But like every working mom, I struggle to, to keep all the pieces together. And my daughter eats a lot of bread. And I, I used to say when she was tiny that it, like eating so much bread was her trying to get more of me back to her. And that was like a, somehow a metaphor for her need for more of my time. So it's it's hard being an entrepreneur, especially in the early years of entrepreneurship and, and balanced parenting. But I'm the mother that I want my kids to know. Maybe I'm not the mother I want them to know when they're one, but I'm the mother I want them to know when they're 10 and 15 and and 20. Well, thank you very much for joining us. 
Thank you. My guest has been Jessamine Rodriguez, founder of Hot Bread Kitchen. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.